Good morning. It is so good to be here with you guys. We're going to be looking this morning at Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. And as you're turning there, I just want to say thank you on behalf of our family, on behalf of our team, and on behalf of our church for your prayers and your partnership in the gospel, especially during this difficult season. And even though it's a season none of us would have desired or wished for, We've already seen so clearly how what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Good for those at Eglise Gormney in Niger and good for you here at Harmony Hill. That in God's perfect providence, an event that many probably would assume would, would bring to a halt the passion for global missions here at Harmony Hill. People probably saying things like, I bet they'll think twice before sending another team to some difficult part of the world now. And instead of that, quite the opposite is happening. As through an event like this, God is actually pushing this church into unprecedented waters of intentional focus and effort among unreached peoples of the world as you pray, as you give, as you go, and as you send, hopefully like never before, a church just full of people who desire to see the nations worshiping Christ, whatever the cost. That's the task, right? It's the task you've been given. It's the task we're giving ourselves to in Niger. And it's not possible for us to do that there without churches like you here. So thank you for your partnership and thank you for this chance to open God's word with you. We're going to jump right into the middle of this text and this gospel of Mark. And so it's good to orient ourselves briefly. Um, You'll remember Mark is written by John Mark, the companion of Paul and Barnabas for at least part of their first missionary journey we find in Acts 12 and 13. He's recording for us Peter, the apostle's account of Jesus' life and ministry. And, And Mark is writing primarily to a Gentile audience. And he tells us why he's recorded this for us there in chapter 1, verse 1, where he writes, this account is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark wants his audience to know and understand that Jesus is the God-man. Now, that might not seem controversial to you this morning, but to those in the first century and to about 99.2% of the population of Niger, this is unbelievable, blasphemous, actually. It's a major stumbling block. And, And so Mark has recorded for us this account that he might show us who Jesus is. So we're in chapter 4 today, and verse 35 starts with, on that day. Now, what day? If you go back just a little in the text, you can see it's been a, a day full of ministry with healing and teaching there by the Sea of Galilee where crowds have formed. So much so, Jesus has to get in a boat and go out on the water so that he can be seen and heard. So that's our context. That's the on that day here. And at the end of it, Mark tells us, now it's evening. And so Jesus says to them, let us go across to the other side. They're going to cross the Sea of Galilee, which really isn't a sea, but a freshwater lake. Today it's known as Lake Kinneret. It's the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. It sits at almost 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains rising thousands of feet into the air. And so it creates this unique weather pattern as cool mountain air sweeps down and meets that humid, warm air coming off the lake, causing these severe storms that can spring up with a moment's notice. And so Jesus tells his disciples to cross this lake, and Mark tells us, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat 
just as he was. Doesn't get out, doesn't go eat, doesn't get to rest. They just took him as he was. Remember, already teaching there in the boat, and they head off across the lake. And Mark mentions for us that other boats were there with him. And so here's the picture. You have this little fleet of boats crossing this lake at dusk when all of a sudden a great windstorm arose. And that word for windstorm can mean hurricane. Mark tells us waves are breaking into the boat, so much so that the boat was already filling. Now, now we know at least four of these men were seasoned fishermen. They had spent countless hours on this very lake. Like They're familiar with wind. They know storms, but more importantly, they know what kind of wind and what kind of storms sink boats. And this is one of them. And so when these men on that boat start to panic, you know that it's bad. This is no small breeze. This is a devastating wind, and it will sink this entire fleet. And these seasoned fishermen, they know it. And so there's this moment of chaos, moment of, of panic and despair. And, and Mark takes us immediately from that chaos, and he points our direction at the stern of that boat. And there we find what? We find Jesus asleep on the cushion. And so the disciples, they, they, they wake him up and they, they say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Like this is serious. We're, we're about to die here. And Jesus awakes. He rebukes the wind. He says to the sea, Peace, be still. And both the wind and the waves listened and obeyed. Yeah, like, we're, we're too familiar with this story, right? I, I say that in Niger, and there are audible gasps, like, what just happened? This isn't normal. And I don't think any of the disciples in that boat expected that to happen. I mean, they knew Jesus had power. They, they'd seen him heal people. They, they'd seen him cast out demons. I think maybe they're, they're hoping somehow he can put them in a, in a bubble of some sorts, keep them safe in the midst of this storm. But I don't think... Anyone in that fleet of ships expected Jesus to stand up and rebuke wind and, and speak to the sea. Like you rebuke someone. You, you don't rebuke something. You, you speak to someone. You don't speak to something. But Jesus did. And in just a few words, this great windstorm becomes a great calm. Hurricane force winds instantly become perfectly still. And so Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then Mark writes, they were filled with great fear. And they say to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So that's a story we find here at the end of Mark 4. It's a story that teaches us much, I believe, about storms and not just literal ones involving winds and waves, but instead, and the definition that I want to give you this morning as we think through this is storms are unwelcome events that sweep into our lives unexpectedly and unannounced, which bring chaos and panic, oftentimes driving us to despair. So when we talk about storms this morning, I want you to have that picture in mind. And these storms, as you know, 
maybe better than me, they will inevitably come into each and every one of our lives. You might be in the middle of one this morning. Could be financial, could be relational, could be physical. Yours likely is not going to come in the middle of a lake on a boat. It might come in a doctor's office. It might come with a knock on the door or a call in the middle of the night. It might come when you get the message that there's a team of students from our church that are trapped 6,000 miles away in a country descending into chaos. One thing's certain, storms will come. And when they do, we need to be prepared. And I think Mark is helpful in this task. So I want us to see three things this morning that I think are happening in this text as it relates to these storms in our life. And the first I want to point out is notice that it is our obedience that oftentimes leads us into the storm. Did you catch that in the text? Those who stayed on the shore... They were comfortably in their homes, maybe asleep on their beds, when the disciples endured this storm on the lake. It was only those men who got in the boat and followed Jesus' command to go across the lake who encounter this terrifying windstorm. The obedience will often lead us not away from, but right into the middle of a storm. It's not always the case. Sometimes our disobedience can lead us into the storm. An ongoing sin can lead us into the storm. But that's not what we have going on in our text this morning. Here we have Jesus. He, he says to the disciples, let's go over to the other side. And they go. Like this isn't Jonah, is it? They're not running away from the Lord. No, they're abandoned their vocations. They're, they're following the Lord's command. And it takes them where? Right into the heart of a hurricane. Now, there's something key, I think, that helps us understand this when we, we look at Matthew's account of this same event. There we find it in chapter 8 of his gospel. And, and there Matthew gives us a little more detail of some of the content that Jesus was teaching on before they get into this boat. And what we find there is Jesus' famous teaching on the cost of discipleship. Those heavy words that, that Jesus uses to separate out crowds from disciples. And Jesus is warning them, any would-be follower of me, any disciple of mine must pick up their cross. And so those are some of the last words these disciples hear before they head out on this lake. Perhaps it's those very words that caused so many to stay on the shore. If you notice, Mark makes a distinction there in verse 36. He says, the crowd has been left behind. Like this boat trip, it would seem, is for disciples only. Because notice where they're going. This trip across the lake isn't for a retreat. It's not as if Jesus needs some sort of break, some sort of rest. No, they are crossing the lake on a mission trip. They're going into Gentile territory. Jesus is leading the disciples to proclaim the good news, the gospel to those who thus far have been outside of the kingdom of God. And so what I want you to see, watch this, right between Jesus' teaching on the cost of discipleship and their mission to the Gentiles, what do we find in the middle of that? Well, what we find is Jesus' command to go and the disciples' act of obedience. I think that's informative. I think that's how it works 
with you and with me as well. Like the bridge that connects our knowledge with our mission is our obedience. Maybe you want to say it here at Harmony Hill that your time in the word is only going to lead to labor in the harvest as people of Harmony Hill trust and obey Christ who is the catalyst. Now here's what I want to point out though. It's the disciples' desire, a good desire to follow Jesus' command. It's their very obedience that leads them right into the middle of this storm, right into the heart of this this is exactly what Mark's original audience is experiencing as well. Remember, he's, he's writing to Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians who are facing severe persecution from the Roman government. Like they're following Christ, their obedience to Christ. It has not made their life easier. In fact, it's made their life very difficult, has cost them greatly. And not just those original hearers. I mean, church history, it's full of faithful men and women who, because of their obedience to Christ, suffered severely. And not just the early church. I mean, even in modern missions, we have story after story of, of missionaries who go to the nations. They, they left everything, men and women who, in the prime of their lives, they left their families, they left their friends, they left everything familiar so that they might take the gospel to a foreign land only to die or have their wife die or have their kids die before they even got to where they were going or to get there and then live lives that are marked by extreme loss and difficulty. And even this morning we could stand here and, and tell you names and stories of our friends in Niger who have been beaten, who've been divorced, who've been abandoned and cast out because of their faith. But you see, it's not just the early church. It's not just missionaries. It's not just those who live in Muslim-majority countries. No, costly obedience is for any follower of Christ. And that includes you. And that includes me. Those of us in here who will take our faith seriously, who, who will stand up and speak the truth who will desire to live holy lives. Like you do that even in a place like Lufkin, Texas, and I promise you it will cost you. It will cost you financially. It might cost you relationally. It might cost you vocationally. But one thing is certain, your faith, your obedience will have a heavy cost. And let me just remind you, to get the gospel to the 3.4 billion people who today are living in what's called the 1040 window, this part of the world where there is little to no access to the gospel, where people can say, I've, I've never met a Christian, I've never heard the name of Jesus, I've never seen that or heard that. For us to get the gospel to them, to places like that, it will necessarily involve sacrifice. It will necessarily invite suffering and pain and loss. And we need to know that's how it's always been. See, I'm so afraid in my own heart and maybe in your heart that some of us have let a, a subtle lie of the, the prosperity gospel take root in us. Now, we would never say it out loud, but I think some of us, if we're not careful, there's a belief deep, deep inside of us that if I'm following Jesus in obedience, that, that ought to guarantee safety and security. 
Like if, if I'm doing the right thing, if, I, if I'm going to church, if I'm reading my Bible, if I'm sharing, my go- sharing the gospel, if I'm a, a good husband, if I'm a good dad, if I move my family to West Africa, for crying out loud, like surely, surely then God ought to. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying make it perfect, but it ought to be pretty good. Ought to be at least better than those who aren't doing those things, right? That's not. Friends, that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? Instead, over and over in Scripture, we see the opposite is true. Places like Acts 14, Paul says to the believers, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Places like 2 Timothy 3, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Places like Matthew 10, where Jesus says, you will be hated. And why? Because of me. On my account. You see, our desire to live a holy life and to follow Christ, it will cause suffering. Getting the gospel to the nations will require sacrifice and loss. Our obedience takes us into the storm. In the midst of that, it oftentimes feels like we're perishing. Which is why what Mark shows us next is so important. So not only does our obedience lead us into the storm, secondly... In that moment, our hearts are often revealed. And what I mean by that is our fears and our doubts are often exposed in the midst of the storm. One thing I've learned over the years is that crisis exposes your theology. Like when when everything collapses around you in the midst of a storm, it is there that what you truly believe, what you truly think, what you truly love It just comes out. You can't hide it. I mean, it's one thing to say, I trust Jesus from the comfort of the shoreline. It's another thing when your boat is starting to sink. And what Mark shows us is that the disciples' main problem that night on that lake, it wasn't the storm. Their problem wasn't waves of water filling their boat. No, their problem was waves of unbelief filling their hearts. That, that was the true issue. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of their deepest distress, they convinced themselves, they believed Jesus doesn't care that we're perishing. Sounds very similar to David in Psalm 10, doesn't it? Where he says, why, O Lord, do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In the midst of the storm, even those who know God, they'll be tempted to cry out, don't you care that we're perishing? These cries from these disciples revealed a lack of faith, not only in Jesus' ability, that would have been problematic enough, but it's a lack of faith in Jesus' compassion. I'm so afraid in the midst of the storm we'll be maybe tempted to doubt God's sovereignty, but maybe more severe than that we'll be tempted to doubt his goodness. As our family has endured this storm we're currently in, I have been shocked, appalled at some of the things that have come out out of my heart. Some of the thoughts that have come into my mind. You know, just a few weeks before the coup, I had walked our summer interns through a theology of suffering. The very last sermon that I preached at Eglis Gormney was trusting God and his sovereignty in the midst of trials. I mean, listen, on paper, I am rock solid. I got some beautiful PowerPoint presentation I could show you guys. But, but, but what happened? Well, real waves, real wind begin to crash. 
Not just theoretical ones, not just ones on PowerPoint slides. They begin to crash all around me. And I found myself quickly, almost instantly in a panic. Full of worry, full of doubt. Asking God things like, where are you? Do you not see us here? Do you not know the whole reason we're here is because we want to follow you? Like 17 years. How many times have our kids got malaria? How many funerals have we missed? How many weddings have we missed? How many birthdays have we missed? And like this, this is our reward? And what I want you to understand, something really important here. I want to be clear. The storm didn't cause any of that. Didn't create any of that. It simply revealed what was already there in my heart. Maybe you've noticed that in your life, how storms, they find a way of pushing out of our hearts what's already there. This storm, it didn't catch Jesus off guard. We were so tempted, I think, in a story like this to focus on the storm. That's, that's not the point. The point was their faith. Jesus knew what was coming when he said, let's get in the boat. Mark isn't showing us Jesus reacting to a situation that's gone out of control. No, I believe Mark wants us to see that it is Jesus who led his disciples into the storm for the purpose. Because ultimately, it was for their good. It was actually Jesus' kindness to expose their doubt like that, to expose this lack of faith so that they might learn to see him as he truly is. And to trust him alone. And that's the point, I think, of the passage. This is what happens to the disciples. Their obedience has led them into the storm. It's exposed their doubt. And now, finally, the last point, they can see clearly who Jesus actually is. Jesus wakes up. He rebukes the wind, speaks to the waves. Instantly, hurricane-force winds are silenced. Millions of gallons of water are stilled. And it's at this moment Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And, I mean, the answer's painfully obvious. There's, there's no hiding now. The storm has revealed the answer to that question. It's exposed their hearts. They were in a panic. They were full of worry and doubt. And Jesus wants them to see that true faith, it's incompatible. It's just not possible with that kind of anxious fear in the world. And so it was necessary then to, to hear this rebuke, to have their hearts exposed like that, because then and maybe only then were their eyes opened to see Jesus as he truly is, because something else has just happened on that boat. Hope you didn't miss it. Mark tells us that immediately after Jesus rebukes his disciples for being afraid, he tells us they were filled with what? Fear, great fear. Like you'd think maybe relief, joy. Excitement, the storm's over, the, the seas are calm. Why are these guys fearful now? Well, it's a different kind of fear. The fear these men have now is the same kind of fear we see when Moses or Isaiah or anyone in the Bible finds themselves in the presence of God. See, what has happened on that boat is that in the midst of the storm, these men have finally seen who Jesus truly is. You see, there's, there's something more terrifying, more frightening than being in a small boat on a small lake in the midst of a hurricane. 
And that is being on a small boat in a small lake in the midst of a hurricane with a man who can speak to that hurricane and it listens. These are Jewish men. I think they had Psalm 107 on their minds in that boat. It says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves and the sea were hushed. You see, it is only God who can speak and make storms be still. It's only God who can hush waves. And the man standing in the boat with these disciples just did that. So they were filled with great fear. And they say to one another, who is this? Who who is this that, that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's rhetorical. I think they know the answer. You see, that's how Mark ends the story. Because I think that's the point of the story. Mark doesn't end with a calm sea. He ends the story with disciples seeing Jesus and being filled with awe and reverent fear. Because the one who commands the winds and the waves is standing in the boat with them. There's a temptation for people like me, I think, with passages like this to, to totally miss the point here. To stand up here and to say things to you like, you know, whatever storm you've got in your life, if you just have enough faith, Jesus is going to calm that storm right down for you right now. I can't, I can't say that to you this morning. It's not Mark's point here. The, the point is not whether or not Jesus is going to calm the storm in your life. The point is whether or not you are going to see Jesus as he truly is. And so often the storm is necessary for us to see him clearly. And so the thing that you and I need the most is so often the thing you and I so naturally want to avoid. And so as difficult as storms are, they are actually God's kindness to us. How kind of God. It's his kindness to to take things away from us that we're tempted to, to treasure or cling to, or, or find our identity in. Not, not sinful things, even good things, but things that are not ultimate. Things that will not endure. And so God in the storm teaches us, sometimes painfully, to, to take our gaze off of that and to put them on Christ. To see him as infinitely better, infinitely more Satisfying. J.C. Ryle says it like this. By affliction he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it we should never learn. By affliction he shows us our emptiness and weakness. He draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. Listen to this. In the resurrection morning we shall all say, it is good. It is good for me. That I was afflicted. And we shall thank God for every storm. It's only in the storm we learn his grace is sufficient. It's only in the storm when when everything else is collapsing that we see, no, it's, it's in his presence. It's in his presence that there's fullness of joy. It's often only in the storm that we see Jesus as he truly is, as a treasure, more valuable, more precious than any amount of comfort or safety or security. We see that compared to Christ, everything 
It's not just less. What does Paul say? It's loss when you compare it to Christ. This is why Peter, who was in that boat that night and is giving this account to John Mark, he's going to write later to the church, a church that's experiencing severe persecution for their faith. He's going to say to them, rejoice in your suffering. Peter's learned this lesson. He knows that when their faith is tested by trials, that will result in praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ. This same Peter who in the boat is filled with fear and anxiety maybe was the one that said, don't you care, Jesus? Now, years later, he writes to the church, what? Cast all your anxieties on Jesus. Because what? Because he cares for you. In the midst of the storm, Peter has seen Jesus for who he is. He's seen not only is Jesus able, he is willing. He delights in us. And we can be sure this morning that even in the midst of the storm, he has not forsaken you. He has not abandoned you. He's sovereign over all things, even our suffering. And he, friends, is good. He can be trusted. He will hold you fast. And he will see you through this storm. The disciples ask this most important question, who then is this? Who's this man? Who's this Jesus? It's the most important question in the world. It's, it's why we live in these areas. It's why missions exist. It's really why this church is here, to, to answer that question for those both near and far. So what the Gospel of Mark is seeking to answer. It's what the Bible is showing us. Like this is the question, and everything in life and death depends on how you answer that question. It's so important for you to know this today because there's something more terrifying and more devastating than even the worst of storms. And it is the righteous judgment of a holy God against whom all of us have sinned and therefore merited eternal condemnation. None of us can stand. None of us can endure that punishment we all deserve. And yet, even in our wickedness and our rebellion, God has made a way. He's made a way for those of us who have put our faith in Christ that Christ has done something greater than calming a raging sea. He's calmed the wrath of God. Not by speaking to it, not by dismissing it, but by satisfying it. By drinking it as he endured it in our place. Jesus has canceled the record of death that stood against us, setting it aside, nailing it to the cross. He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our grief, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It's by his wounds that we can be healed. He lived the life we could not live, died the death we should have died. And on the third day was raised to life, having defeated sin and death, so that we might be born again to a living hope. Who is this man? It's Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And all who have ears to hear, he says, come to me. Repent, believe, be saved, look to Christ and live. Do you know this man? There's 3.4 billion people today living in that 1040 window that do not know him. And most of them don't know him because they've never heard of him. And they won't hear of him unless people like you and me see Jesus as he truly is, as the only one worthy of our all. People like you and me who taste and see that the Lord is good. And then willfully, joyfully count 
the cost. Follow him in obedience and trust him in the storm. That he is working all things together for our good, for his glory, and for the advance of the gospel among the nations. Let's pray. Father, Lord, help us to see Christ as he truly is. Lord, help us to trust you in the midst of the storm, Lord, in the midst of trials and suffering and pain and loss. May we not be driven to despair. May we see you even more clearly. The goodness, the mercy that you offer us in Christ. God, I thank you for this church. Might you use them as a beacon of hope and light to broadcast that message both near and far. In Jesus' name, amen.